Chris usually stands up here sort of wrapped, and, and he, he usually says something like, oh, I just love worshiping with y'all, you know? And we all feel like that, but I felt like that even uh, pre-sermon, and it's just, it just such a privilege to be here with y'all, worshiping God together. So all because of Christ, and that's what we're preaching on. That's what I'm preaching on this morning. What a privilege. What a great text. Um, before I jump in, let me just say one quick word, and Bubba sort of ended his prayer with it. But as you know, elections, uh, Tuesday, some of y'all have voted so far. I'm not going to endorse a candidate. Wouldn't dare do that, period, for any election, but especially for this one. Because <laughs> um, it's just a madhouse. But I will say just quickly that I want to encourage you to vote if you can. I think that we are called to be good citizens. Um, I know that we are in the scriptures. Um, our citizenship is primarily in heaven, but secondarily to whatever country we're citizens of here, and that's important. And one way to, to exercise citizenship is to vote. So I, I would just ask that you would vote according to biblical principles, and that's, that's a toughie this time. But, but I would encourage you as your pastor to do that, and I'm going to be out there doing it um, as well. So that's all I'm going to say, as Forrest Gump said, about that. Um, now let's get Let's get into this beautiful text. Um, one, of the, one of the commentators says about Colossians 2 here all the way through the end of the chapter. He says, in this paragraph, commencing with verse 6, we come to the heart of the letter. So this is just the meat and potatoes of what Paul has to say. He's warmed up in, in um, chapter 1. It's been some great stuff. We took a break last week and looked at John 3 and 4, called an audible, stepped out of the series, but we're back in. Um, and what I want to preach on this morning to you is simply Jesus versus religion. And by religion, I mean anything that looks uh, to something other than Jesus to save or doesn't look to Jesus alone to save. And we'll, we'll of course, dig into that together. Uh, I call this last approach the Jesus plus approach. And it's something that I think that a lot of professing Christians in the West hold to. They think that they're uh, holding to the the God of the Bible, and, and understand the gospel and embrace it existentially, but really it's a Jesus plus that Paul uh, in part rails against here in, in, this, in this text in Colossians. So to illustrate that, I, I actually am going to turn to a children's book. It's my, my own kid's book. Uh, they are in a school that's great, and we love it. It's a privilege. They had this Bible study book that I'm just going to call the, I'm not going to call it the authors, but I'm just going to call it the Little Green Book, sort of if you've ever read the Abolition of man. Um, Lewis refers to, in a chapter called Men Without Chest, he, he kind of rails on, on the book himself, and I think he calls it Little Green Book, so it's a bit of a call out to Lewis. I haven't mentioned it in a couple weeks, so got to get back to that. If you haven't ever been here, I always talk about Lewis, so if you hate C.S. Lewis, you should just leave right now, because it's a sickness. Um, I'm quoting directly from this book. It's a, it's a book, a Bible study for our kids in their school. It says, what does it mean to be created for God's glory? That means we should live to bring God honor. Okay, so far so good. Don't worry, I'm not going to rail against that. We should do the things that God wants us to do. What do you do that brings honor to God? List several things. Do you do anything that doesn't honor him, such as telling a lie or making fun of someone at school? Check yes or no. Now that you know God made you to honor him, does it matter what you do, the way you dress, the language that you use? Check yes or no. Do you need to treat other people better? Yes or no. Do you need to change the way you dress? Yes or no. Do you need to clean up your language, yes or no? Now, I just want to say that if this is the tenor and the timber of what my kids are getting about who God is and what he's revealed to us and his gospel in Jesus Christ, then this is dangerous. This is, in part at least, a religion against which 
Paul rails. It's a religion based on externals. And if this is, again, what they get and nothing more, it's going to create little hypocrites out of my kids. Um, encouraging them to think that they can glorify God chiefly by dressing up their language, their actual, their clothes, their behavior. Um, but that is not, the gospel says that is not chiefly the way that we glorify God, not at all. Um, rather than pointing out to my kids, do you want to glorify God? Do these things, act this way, put a good polish and shine on. Robin and I, never perfect in the way that we do things, lots of times inconsistent, but what we try to do is say to our kids, look, stop. Do you see that anger that's coming out? Do you see that disrespect? Do you see that disobedience? Not clean it up, but what does that point to, son or daughter? It points to a, a, a heart that's corrupted, a heart that is sick. God calls that sin. And he's given us a solution. He's given us a savior, and his name's Jesus. So looking at our sin, looking at our behavior, and realizing it comes from sick hearts, and realizing that we need new hearts, and the only solution to that is a person, and his name is Jesus Christ. In relationship, then, our behavior does start to change. Our desires start to change. And that's one thing Paul says as he, as he tells the Colossian church, there's no Jesus plus. There's no religion that can save you. There's no amount of things you can do. There's no other philosophy. It's just Christ. So I want to jump into that this morning. And I want to just remind us, and this is something you'll hear throughout the sermon, but Paul makes clear that it is, it is religion that takes us captive, but it's Christ who sets us free. It's religion that takes captive, and Christ sets us free, and Christ alone. So first, let's look at Paul showing us, let's look at the problem. Paul showing us that religion takes captive. It shows up in verse 8, and then there's this end section, verses 16 through 23 as well, religion taking us captive. The phrase take captive here in verse 8 probably means to carry off or kidnap um, rather than to rob us of something. It means literally to just take us away, our very selves away. So this is something that has serious consequences, looking to something other than Christ or Jesus plus for our salvation and for our very life. Um, they take us captive by appealing to us, first of all. So I'm going to walk through just a few of the ways they do that. How does Jesus plus a religion or philosophy or empty deceit, as Paul says, how does it carry us off? How does it take us captive? It takes us captive by appealing to various things in us. It appeals, quite frankly. Um, these teachers that Paul's writing against, they're not advocating anything immoral or godless. If they were, if he was, Excuse me, if they were advocating those sorts of things, Paul's audience, the Colossian church, would have seen right through it. But these things, these, these things appeal. Um, alarm bells would have gone off otherwise, but they haven't, says one commentator, Gordon Fee. Um, rather than these philosophies appealing to, uh, or rather, rather these philosophies appeal, excuse me, to refined religious sensibilities, they were reasonable. Um, Fee says again, he says, they sounded good, they appealed to natural religious instincts. Okay, how so? Just a couple examples. One, these philosophies, and we'll get to some of, some of the things, some of the equivalents in our lives, right, that pull us away from Christ, that we can start to put our, we start to hope in Christ, but then we can sort of begin to go Christ plus and look to other things as well. But one, pride. In religion, I'm in control. Whatever, and there are various forms, tons of different forms of religion. There's Christ, and then there's religion. That's it. Those are the two options, basically. Um, 
But religion appeals to my pride because with religion, I'm in control. God owes me in a sense if I obey. I give him a little, and then God, I want you to give me more back. That's kind of what the sacrificial, the pagan sacrificial system was based on. If I sacrifice my firstborn son, we look at that and think, how cruel, how terrible. I could never do that, and I hope I never would. But in that system, I give you something very precious to me at great cost. Now you give me what I need. It's a barter system. And we do the same thing every time we tap into a system that's not Christ and Christ alone. Um, if, I, if I tap into this and I, and I obey God and I, look, and I look at sort of what I get from him as a result of my obedience, then it puffs me up and it makes me proud. And it gets me to the place where I think I deserve, um, I deserve what I'm getting from God. If I'm honest with myself and with who uh, the scriptures say God is, then in his holiness, then I realize that I'm not keeping the things that God wants me to keep and I despair. So that sort of solution leads me to either pride and being puffed up and looking down at everybody else and not living a life of love like we're called to, or just despairing, if I'm honest with myself. But these philosophies also seem reasonable. They appeal not just to our pride, but to our reason, okay? Um, the gospel is, I can do nothing to save myself and have offended an infinite God in every part of who he is, so infinitely. Therefore, I will pay an infinite price because God is just, um, because of my offenses. That's the gospel, although that's just the first half. The gospel is that Christ stepped into my place and lived a life of perfect obedience that I should live but haven't and died a death of perfect atonement and cleansing for me. Nailed, as Paul says here, nailed my debt to the cross by himself being nailed to the cross so that I could walk. There's that great line in the hymn, interposed his precious blood. I love that, that word, interposed. Sometimes people change it out for a more modern or easy to understand word, but the idea that he stepped in between, like a shield. God's called a shield in the Bible. A shield steps, it goes in between me and the attacker, which in my case is my sin and Satan and hell because of what I've done, because of who I owe. In God's wrath, justly arrayed against me, Jesus steps in like a shield, and he bears that punishment and protects me so that I'm unharmed. Um, well, I, did, I couldn't help myself, right? As a preacher, I just gave you the gospel. But the reason that these philosophies and religions appeal to reason is because they leave me in control. Um, everything else in our life works so that I work for it and then I get it because of what I've done. So you think about work. If I perform, I'm rewarded generally, and if I don't, I'm out. I, get, I have to look for a new job. Um, sports, relationships, they tend, to be, they tend to be just the same. But the gospel cuts against that, and it offends our sensibility. It offends our reason. Other things don't work like that. God has done everything for me. What? So then, that, that's offensive to my reason. So then, I have no sense of control. That's right. You're totally his, bought with a price. Completely loved. Completely owned. Um, so, they take us captive by appealing. They also take us captive through legal exactions and strictures. Um, Paul talks about the legal demands in verse 14. And he mentions some of God's good laws in verse 16. Um, he talks about food and drink and commemorative days. These were requirements in the, in the Old Testament, in the law for Israel, God's people. But in this, there's a lot here, but I'm just going to be brief. 
But in brief, Christ, what Paul shows us here and elsewhere is that Christ fulfilled all of these exactions that the law required. They were all pointers to him, and he fulfilled all of them for us. So to, take, to break the law into three sort of blocky, not completely comprehensive, and not completely discrete sections, the law consists basically of the ceremonial, the civil, or the civic, and the, uh, and the moral, okay? And it's not perfect. Some of them bleed. Some of them are both like ceremonial and civil, and I might give an example or two of those. But um, so, for instance, with the ceremonial, like the, in the Old Testament, Israel was to keep the Sabbath. They were not to do any work on the Sabbath. And if, and if anybody was even caught like gathering sticks, it says in the Old Testament, in the, in the first five books, in the Pentateuch, the, law, the books of Moses, if he was doing anything that he did the other six days of the week, what was to happen to him or her? He was to be taken and stoned by the people executed. Um, we don't, that doesn't, now some would disagree with this. No, I don't think anybody today, any Christian today would want to do the exact same thing, right? But some people think that the Sabbath really in, in full, is still in full force other than the stoning bit today. Um, but he talks about, he actually uses the word Sabbath here in this text. Um, now some would even say he might not have been talking about the Sabbath, it's the creational Sabbath, one day a week. Um, but whether or not he is, Christ fulfilled, if you look at Hebrews 4 and other texts, Christ fulfilled that for us. He is our rest that we are to take on a regular basis to restore ourselves and to worship God. Christ has brought us not only into one day a week of that, where we really, we really celebrate that one day a week with the Lord's Day, but actually because it was moved from the end of the week, Saturday, which is when the Jews celebrated the Sabbath, the Shabbat, to Sunday, the first day of the week, because the, the Lord rose, what, not on the last day of the week, he rested in the grave during the Jewish Shabbat. Because his work was finished on the cross. And what did he do? He rose on the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, we, we now call it. So Christians early on moved. And John even says at the beginning, but even before the canon was closed, in Revelation chapter 1, he says, I was, I, was, I was having a vision on the Lord's Day. He's already calling Sunday the Lord's Day. Christians had already started before the canon was closed in 90 AD or so to, to rest and worship God on a new day. It was the first day of the week. So what is that? One of the things that tells us is, that it's not just, whew, I'm tired, this creation's broken, let me rest. It's God is doing something new at the very roots of, of things and at the beginning of our week and the Sabbath, the Lord's Day ought to be for us worship and celebration and rest that should shoot throughout the rest of our week and through the rest of our lives. So Christ takes, he fulfills with every, he fulfills every intention and stricture and exaction of the Sabbath law a ceremonial law, and it's no longer binding on us, but still the principle of resting one day a week is very good for us, but it no longer hangs over us, and it's been transformed, you see? And it, I mean, I could preach a whole, and I probably should, preach a whole sermon, and I probably will at some point on, on Shabbat, on Sabbath, on how to Sabbath as a people of God, on what Sunday means, on how it shoots throughout the rest of our lives, how it ought to. Um, but he's fulfilled that for us, and that's a, that's a ceremonial law. Um, Unclean and clean food, so, so defined and, and given distinction in the, um, in the Levitical law. Um, those no longer, now the principles still hold, like, man, you might, maybe you shouldn't, like, eat shrimp all the time because they're scavengers, and that's not probably the best thing for you, and some of those reptiles and stuff like that that they shouldn't eat, but that no longer 
looms over us. It's something we have to do or else. That was a sort of a picture of how the Jews were to be a holy and distinct and separate people, even in the way that they ate, in everything that they did, even in the kind of clothes they wore, that the, that the you know, certain um, textiles, certain bits of fabric shouldn't be uh, worn together. And now we have blended fabrics of all sorts. Why? Because that was a picture of how God wanted his people to be set apart, separate, holy, without sin. There were all these sort of external pictures that Christ fulfilled. He abrogated the ceremonial law. It's no longer in effect. Civil law, in short, sort of the second category, ceremonial, civil. Um, I'm doing a bit of a discursus here, sorry, on, on the law, but I think it's important just for us to get a bit. And I'll take time in future weeks and months to talk more through the law and how it pictures Christ for us and what he's done with it. But the ceremonial, the civil law, like laws that apply to a civic society, Israel as a geopolitical nation, as a people. How do they operate? How do they live day to day? Um, one of them was capital punishment, okay? Now, Christ also, because we aren't, as Christians, a geopolitical nation, and because he fulfilled these things, they aren't binding on us anymore. But the principles of a lot of these civil laws that were given to Israel are really great. There's a lot of judiciousness and wisdom in, in some of these principles. So like capital punishment, um, with the reason that God said, he who takes a life, his life shall be taken, is because it put a premium, it put fear of God in man for taking man's life, and it put a premium on man's life. He's made in God's image. When you take his life in murder, not through war or by accident, but in murder, in cold blood, with intention, your life shall be taken. It dissuades murder, and it, it reminds God's people that human life is very precious. Um, so capital punishment is sometimes, in some societies, uh, it's, uh, it's embraced, and in others, less and less so in this, in this sort of postmodern world. I think in our system, some states still have it on the books, and some states don't, so it's sort of a, uh, a federalism issue in our country. But um, So like separation of powers, Again, uh, it's not something we have to do as a people, but we've, as, an, as Americans, we've adopted uh, a, a wonderful, uh, reasonable, enlightened, and helpful separation of powers in our government. And there's so much of that in, in the Old Testament law, where the king couldn't do what the priest could do, and there was also the prophet, like Nathan, who could come to the very king himself, who could have just cut off anybody's head in the ancient Near East, to David in, in 1 Samuel 12, is it? And say to David and hold him accountable and say, look, you've sinned. God's displeased with you. So there are all these pictures of the separation of powers um, with God himself as the ultimate king and the one from whom laws come. So, but those principles hold. They're still, in a lot of times, well applied in a society, but Christ also fulfilled those. Filled the civil, fulfilled the civil, fulfilled the ceremonial, and hey, also fulfilled the moral. We don't have to keep moral laws in order to be loved by God, in order to be his children. Christ kept those for us. However, with the moral law, the moral gets into a different category where the moral law is the very fabric of the universe. Like, don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't cheat. Um, don't covet. Don't murder. These are things that hold true. Again, if you read The Abolition of Man by Lewis, he has a, an appendix in the back on the towel. He calls it the towel or the way. And every society in the world embraces these things. These are, these are the way that the universe works. So when you decide, like, hey, Christ has fulfilled these, but I'm going to go ahead and disobey. Like, if you're in Christ, first of all, he's given you a heart, and you're 
pushing against that desire now, that new desire that he's given you to obey God. You don't have to obey God, you get to. But if you're choosing not to in that way, your life, you're tearing against the fabric of the way that God made things because of who he is. If you go ahead and murder or commit adultery or this or that, there are going to be consequences. It's like if I step off a building, even if I don't believe in the law of gravity, or I do, but I just want, don't want to follow it today, sorry, that's going to hurt. And that's what happens with the moral law. But the, the point is, we don't, we're moved because of Christ and because he even fulfills the moral law as it stands against us, that thing which we could not keep. He moves us from a position of having to keep the law to getting to it because he's kept it for us. And now we, we're, we get to keep the law, not out of compulsion, but because he's kept it for us. And we have forgiveness when we break the law and when we, um, when we sin. And we are given new desires as we trust in him. We want to please our father. We no longer are afraid that we're going to break the law or one of its strictures. So we're moved into a different place with regard to the law. Um, and, and the other thing that Paul touches on here, in verse 18, he talks about um, some like man-made accretions or additions to the law. So like asceticism, just, just the virtue of, of um, like disdaining and, mo- and, and pushing away from things that are pleasurable. Um, uh, worship of angels and other things that are not God, high, high invisible beings that, that aren't God, things that God never endorsed, um, don't marry Again, worshiping angels, a mediator other than God. Um, and the point there, I think, and we have some of our own, although these are a bit more passe now with our generation, and, and not that we're all one generation here, but the old don't drink, don't dance, don't smoke. Um, a lot of times, and these might not hold so much anymore, but the point holds, which is that like, when we hold to the law, to Jesus plus as being our system of salvation, it's never enough. And things are continually added to whatever our system is. We will add to God's law. Even if we're just trying to hold strictly to his law, we will make it more intense. We will add. It will deviate. It will never be enough because we know in our being that we can't do enough good things to measure up to God. We know that deep down, even if we tell ourselves otherwise. And again, what it leads to is either thinking, I have done enough. So it leads to pride and hypocrisy because to keep thinking I've done enough, we have to keep thinking that the law is just concerned with the, out, the things I do on the outside, externals. And, and what I have to tell myself is God doesn't really care about the heart. Like, I'm not um, committing adultery, but I am looking at porn. And I'm lusting after that woman. I'm undressing her with my eyes. But I can't think about the fact that God really cares about that too and measures that too and that that counts in his eyes, and he cares about my heart, the most important part of who I am. Because if I open myself up to that possibility, and my whole system of worth is based on, have I kept these laws? If it ceases to, to just become external, then I'm in trouble. So then I gain pride, I become a hypocrite, and I think that God doesn't care about the, my inside life, my interior life, my desires, my ambitions, my hopes, my fears, my anxieties. The so much of who I am, God is just all of a sudden not concerned about. Do you see how devastating that is? Plus, it inoculates me against being saved because I think I've got it. I don't need, I've got the gospel, right? But actually, no, you don't. Jesus plus, it doesn't work that way. 
I think I'm in, in right standing before God. I don't need his help. I certainly don't need his help in the drastic form that Christ came to give us. Paul says, no way. This quote from a commentary, he says, any system of religion which is unwilling to accept Jesus Christ as the only and all-sufficient Savior is an indulgence of the flesh, a giving in to man's sinful conceit as if he by his own contrivances were able to perfect Christ's imperfect work. So that's what, basically, that's what Christ plus says. It's saying, your work wasn't enough, Jesus. I'm going to add to it just a little. Maybe I started there, but I'm going to advance it. And Paul says, no way, you can't do it from start to finish, from receiving Christ all the way to walking it out. All throughout your life, it's Christ and Christ alone. It's who he is and what he's done for you and how he represents you before the Father. It's all by faith. It's all realizing I've done nothing, he's done it all. I deserve what he got. He gave me his record. Paul says you never graduate from that. It's not the ABC. The gospel's not the ABCs of our faith. It's the A to Z. And we grow in depth of understanding mentally, existentially, physically, throughout our lives. It's the sort of thing that a little kid can play in and not drown. I trust in Jesus. I have a dirty heart. He makes me clean. Yes, true. Any child that understands that and believes on Christ is saved. Fully a sinner, fully deserving of God's wrath, saved, just like any one of us. But yet there's so much more than that. The gospel is also a deep, deep ocean that we can never, ever, ever plumb the depths of. So reading my Bible, praying, giving away lots of money, being generous, going to church, being a member of a church, a covenant member, having perfect Sunday and midweek parish gathering attendance, walking the aisle in this, in this part of the country, right, walking down the aisle, praying the sinner's prayer, sort of magically as it were, getting baptized, whether as an infant or an adult, teaching Sunday school, having a theology degree, being a pastor, preaching from the pulpit. None of these things save us. None of these things mean that we're saved. None of, they can be fruit of the fact that we are new creations in Christ, but none of these things save us, and none of these things mean that we're saved. Um, I've even heard of pastors like many, many, many stories of pastors after years in the pulpit and in the ministry being saved, coming, move, being moved from death to life. They thought they were saved, and then all of a sudden they listened to their own words, or they read a scripture, and in the middle of preaching the very word of God, or t- actually translating like John Calvin from the Latin or the French, I've heard of that before, can you believe that? Um, like the minutes of his consistory in Geneva, and all of a sudden just the Holy Spirit takes a hold of their hearts, because what? It's a transaction. It's believing on Christ, and he makes you alive by taking your sin away from you, paying for it on the cross, and giving you his heart, his Holy Spirit. That's it. It's you're either dead or alive, and you're only alive if you trust in Jesus, not Jesus plus. Um, the five, there are five solos of the Protestant Reformation, which we'll be preaching through next year on the 500th anniversary of the Reformation, um, which sort of officially started in 1517, but not really. Um, but one of the solos is sola fide, by faith alone. By faith alone, we're saved, Okay. We're saved by, faith, uh, by grace alone through faith, really, is what Paul says in, um, in Ephesians and elsewhere. We're saved by grace, the work of Christ on our behalf, by believing in him through faith. The Roman church agreed with that, okay? Saved by grace, the work of Christ, through faith. So far, so good. The Roman church agreed with that. It's that little word at the end that they can't sign on for, alone. 
saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. The sola. Um, there's nothing else. It's not faith plus. It's faith in Christ and what he's done, period, alone. Salvation is from him, all of it. So I'm not in control at all. You have my life, God. Give me yours. That's it. And that's why Paul writes what he does here. So religion takes us captive, but Christ, a much more fun point, Christ sets us free. Religion takes us captive. Let's, let's uh, shift into third gear here and look at how Christ sets us free. So verse 6a and then 9 through 15, really in the heart of the text, where Paul talks about what Christ has done for us, how he has set us free and, as opposed to religion. Uh, he talks about, in verse 11 and following, he talks about the circumcision of Christ. Um, in fact, I'll just go ahead and read that verse right now. You probably got it on, on your screen. But in him, in Christ, also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, what does that mean by the circumcision of Christ? We've been made new. It can mean two different things, and commentators go back and forth. Does it mean, one, that, it was, that Christ was circumcised? Not, you know, in the Old Testament sense, which he was, okay? But was he circumcised in a new way? Was he cut off? In circumcision in the Old Testament, a male, you know, his uh, procreative member, okay, was cut. And it was that, that piece of skin was cast off, bloody, and it, it was dried up and it died. It was cast off. And one, one way of reading this verse, the circumcision of Christ, is that he himself was circumcised. He was our circumcision, cast off, bloodied, crucified, cast off, died. The very origin of life, cast away into death so that he could bear our death and so that we could get his life. That's one thing, one way, one thing Paul could be saying here. Or is it the circumcision by Christ? The very fact that what he did means that our hearts are circumcised. That's what Old Testament circumcision always pointed to. It wasn't like, hey, if you have a mark on your wee-wee as a little boy, you were, uh, wee-wee is in my vocabulary because I've got three little kids that are all under se age seven. Um, sorry. So that, that means, okay, you're in the club. God approves of you. No, that was a sign and a symbol, like so much in the Old Testament, of the fact that your heart, Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 31 and elsewhere, Ezekiel 36, your heart needed circumcising. It was a sign of a much deeper work that God said, I will do one day. I will cut your hard heart full of sin and self, and I will give you a heart transplant. I'm going to give you a new heart with new desires. It's something only I can do. I'm at, at the very point where life should come from, I'm going, to, I'm going to give death so that you can live. So I think you don't have to choose here. The, the Greek phrase can mean either one, the circumcision of Christ. I think it means both. The fact that Christ himself was cut off for us so that we could be brought in. He was killed so that we could be made alive. And the fact that we are given new hearts. One of my prof old professors, he wasn't actually mine, but he, he was a professor of missions at my seminary, and he left before I got there. But he would ask people famously, brother or sister, have you got the joy? Like he would come up and shake their hand, never having met them, and say, brother or sister, have you got the joy? Presuming he was talking to a Christian or if he knew that person and they were a believer, he would say, brother, have you got the joy? Or sister, have you got the joy? And that is a, is a great greeting because it shows that he understands what it means to be in Christ. And that is we are new creations and that joy, if we don't have the joy, 
And Paul later talks about, actually in verse 6, the beginning of our text, and I'm going to finish with that, he talks about thanksgiving. We ought to be a people that joy is characterizing our lives increasingly. It doesn't mean we don't go through hard stuff. It doesn't mean tragedy doesn't befall us. It doesn't mean we don't mourn. Christ encourages us, mourn with those who mourn, weep with those who weep. This life is hard. We are in a broken creation. We lose children. We sin. We have other forms of loss. There's tragedy that strikes. Um, but to be a people increasingly characterized by joy, and joy is like bubbling up from within us, a deep, deep confidence and happiness in who we are in Christ and what he's called us to, but also a thanksgiving. Um, and that, that greeting kind of reveals that. Have you got what only God can give, what he gives by his Holy Spirit through faith and with the work of Jesus Christ? Have you got the joy, brother? Have you got the joy, sister? Um, what does Paul say in Galatians 6.15? For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but what? A new creation. It's not something we can work up. It's only something God gives as a gift in Christ. What has he freed us from? Getting into the really the hot core of, of this beautiful text in verses 12 and, and following through 16 and then, and then finishing with our third point. So what? That's my, my third point. So what? Okay, so religion takes us captive. Christ is free. So what? How does this... How does this affect my Monday morning? How does this change my life? How, do, how can I put this into practice? We'll get there in just a second. But let's look briefly at what he has freed us from. He's freed us from our hardness of heart, from our love of sin. He's circumcised our hearts. He's given us something. The very, in the Hebrew worldview, my heart was, it wasn't, in our worldview, it's sort of like where the emotions come from. But in the Hebrew worldview, the heart was the seat of man's affection and his mind, his core, his guts, everything, the center of him. And that means that what, when our hearts are circumcised, it means that we are made new. Not that we're sinless, but that we are forgiven of all of our sin and given a new desires, and that God works on that throughout our lives as we confess our sin and look to Christ and walk out what he's, who, with him, our salvation and then he completes that and perfects that on the final day. And that's a guarantee if we trust in Christ. It's done. It's finished. It's guaranteed. Um, so our hardness of heart, we're given soft hearts. Our love of sin, it changes. We don't love sin like we used to. And if we do, there's a problem. And we ought to ask ourselves, not, oh, what do I need to do to clean myself up, but the check engine light. Am I saved at all? Do I need to believe on Christ? for the first time, truly believe. And if you do, I pray that today is the day that you do that. Maybe now, maybe during communion, maybe as we flank out with our prayer team, maybe afterward, but I would invite you to that. Um, he's freed us from our debt for law-breaking. If you get a speeding ticket, the law doesn't bend. There's no flex. Um, it's like math, right? I've mentioned this in a previous sermon. It's like the law is like math, the math table. It doesn't flex if you make a mistake. It just is what it is. It's true. If you break it, then there's a consequence. You're wrong. There's no forgiveness with the law, but God is a person. He's not a math problem or a speeding ticket. And he is perfectly just, but he's also perfectly full of mercy and compassion and grace. And only a person can be full of those things. And God is multi-personal, Father, Son, and Spirit. And so he chooses he chooses to give us mercy through the mechanism of his son, Jesus Christ, while also being just. Displaying his justice by punishing our sin on the cross and giving us mercy. 
through Christ, the favor of Christ on our behalf. He got our crap. He got our judgment. He got the wrath of God for us. He became our sin. We get God's mercy. So Christ erased our debt for law-breaking. He fulfilled it. He completed it. He kept the law perfectly for us. He erased sin's power over us. The debt's been paid. I don't owe anything anymore. Um, a new heart's been given. He erased my guilt. We feel guilty. If we're in Christ, we're new creatures in Christ, and we have a relationship with him, and we're walking with him. Sometimes we feel, a lot of times, we feel guilty. I do a lot for my sin. But actually, we should know that guilt has been paid for on the cross. That is, we should feel sorrow over our sin. Sorrow that leads to, re, to repentance. Remorse that leads to changed life. But knowing that Christ has paid for that, guilt is a forensic thing, and it's forensically been taken care of in the heavenly courtroom before God the Father by the cross of Jesus Christ. What did he say on the cross? His last words, it's finished. It's finished. So guilt is something you just need to know Christ has paid for if you're in him. And if you have that truly on your heart, then you need to run to Christ and give him your guilt because he's paid for it. Um, hey, there's that great verse in 13b where, Christ, or where Paul says that phrase, he says, having forgiven all, that phrase, Christ having forgiven all, there's that beautiful completed and total aspect. It's already forgiven. He's done it. He's forgiven it, having forgiven. And then all. Um, it's complete. It's total. He's forgiven all of our sin. It's a one-time thing. It's been done. Let go of it. Let go of it. Um, and that bit in 14b where Paul talks about this, he says, by canceling, verse 14, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands, this Christ set aside, nailing it to the cross. The fact is, he didn't nail a, a certificate or a bill that said paid on the cross. He didn't literally do that. What is Paul talking about? What was nailed to the cross? Christ himself. Christ himself is the proof. He is the bill that has with tons of our, the debts that we'd racked up by offending God, okay? He, Christ himself became that, that debt in his own person, was nailed to the cross, and he is the debt that has paid, it is finished, stamped on him. Remembering the fact that he has done that and is finished and he's paid for everything. And the fact that Romans 4.25, he rose from the dead as proof that God the Father accepted that bill as sufficient payment for your sin. It's finished. Living out of that freedom is what the Christian life's about. It's, there's no plus. We never graduate from that. That's it. And finally, finishing up, there's so much more. Disarm the powers. Put them to open shame. Shadow versus reality. Let me just mention put them to open shame, and then we'll get to the, the, the close. But how did Christ put demonic powers arrayed against us that had us in prison because of our sin to shame? The fact is, Satan thought he, his heyday was Christ on the cross. Demons were having an absolute party on that day as the skies turned dark and earthquakes started to rumble. Satan thought he'd won. The son of the living God, God himself, become man on a cross, crucified by hateful men. Okay? But actually, and he was deeply shamed for us. People thought he was a sinner. He became sin. Nobody knew he was bearing, he was a vicarious atoning sacrifice for our sins and that he was perfectly innocent at that point. He was just, people were wagging their heads and shaking their fingers and, and all hell was having a party and he was 
there's no tunic like we have on our crucifixes. Like he was just naked and just shredded, absolutely shredded from the cat of nine tails and from the whipping and the beating and the scourging and the hair pulling and the spitting. Um, He was utterly shamed. But through that shame that he endured for us, he actually defeated the power of sin, law with its demands over us, death and hell for any who would look to him. So he actually, through his death, opened up a portal for those of us who are guilty before God in ourselves to walk into life. And in that way, through his own death, he defeated death. And, and Paul describes it in sort of Roman terms as basically through that shameful cross, crossed, Christ shamed the powers such that he was like a war hero through that cross and through his resurrection that was in his chariot sort of being, being drawn by horses through the city square, through the town streets with the prisoners held and Satan and all of his minions and the law and all of its demands behind him, chained, walking behind him through the city, just shamed. We thought we had him, but he actually, by being shamed, shamed us. It's this beautiful picture of victory. God showed us how powerful he was by letting go and becoming weak and humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And now let me just end with this in the so what. There's so much here, and if you look at verse really primarily verse 6, but verses 6 and 7, Paul says, Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted, built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. I just want to say, all these things, he says, just as you received Christ, which is what? By faith. So walk in him. In other words, walk out Christ just, just in the exact same way that you believed in him, looking to him and not yourself. Paul says, you don't switch anything when you start to walk that out in life. Just as you receive Christ, so walk out your Christian life, receiving, receiving, abiding, abiding in Christ. And also, if you look at these other verbs, it seems like Paul might be saying, okay, clean yourself up now, root yourself, what? Built up, built up in him, established in the faith, grounded in Christ, okay? But he's, he's saying walk out that which Christ has already done, and actually all these verbs, they're passive. They're passive verbs. Somebody, another subject is doing the acting, okay? We are to be rooted, built up, established. By whom? By God himself. As we walk out our faith, it's God himself who is working in you through what Christ has done. And I just want to finish with abounding in thanksgiving. Paul says, you ought to abound in thanksgiving, finally. I just want to share a brief story that sort of, to me, encapsulates what Paul's talking about here. It's from Walker Percy's Lost in the Cosmos. It's from chapter or question 11. And Percy asks what it would be like if we lived keenly aware of the fact that the alternative to life is suicide. Um, And it's an alternative. Can we all know that? Like, Like, I could take my life. I know that. But he says, what if we lived in light of the fact that, okay, today I could take my life, but I'm choosing not to. He calls that the ex, not the non-suicide, which some never even considered as an option, but they just kind of wade through life and drudge through it as something they have to do. But as like, I could have, today I could have committed suicide, but I'm choosing life. So he calls that not the non-suicide, but the ex-suicide. Okay? And he says, um, he's basically, he talks about boredom and why do we get bored and why do we see life as just something that is a given instead of something that's a gift? Um, instead of, we see it as something just to get through rather than something that we don't deserve. And this is the differential. Um, 
And like I said, he refers to the life is due me as something to wade through as the non-suicide and the life is gift as the ex-suicide. And he, and he finishes the chapter this way, chapter 11. He says, the difference between a non-suicide and an ex-suicide leaving the house for work at 8 o'clock on an ordinary morning. So imagine yourself tomorrow morning, 8 o'clock, you're leaving the house for work. The non-suicide is a little traveling suck of care, sucking care with him from the past and being sucked toward care in the future. His breath is high in his chest. He's not taking deep breaths. It's shallow. He's anxious. He's a ball of anxiety. I can, I can identify. The ex-suicide opens his front door, sits down on the steps, and laughs. Ha, 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 ha. I just watched Real Genius with my brother, and Chris Knight does it at one point. It's great. Um, now you try. <laughs> um, no, he doesn't laugh like, like Mitch. He laughs like Chris Knight. He laughs deeply because he sees from his front doorstep on a Monday morning that life's a gift. It's not, it's not do him. Since he has the option of being dead, he has nothing to lose by being alive. It's good to be alive. He goes to work because he doesn't have to. I just want to say, you know, in thinking about how Paul, really how I'm finishing this sermon, but how Paul starts this text with, we ought to be a people abounding in thanksgiving because Christ, our circumcision, has been cast off so that we could be brought in, rooted, established in him. Walking as we have received him. We of all people can actually be this kind of people and ought to be. Let that gospel penny drop just a little more today. Lord, may it be. Religion takes us captive, but Christ sets us free. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you for um, the fact that there is no other answer. The law is not an answer. It's something Christ fulfilled. It's something that pointed to him. It's something that got the universe ready for him. Um, other philosophies, other religions, um, our own work aren't the answer. You are, Jesus Christ. Uh, alive, dead, crucified, buried, and risen, and reigning now, and one day you will return. You are the answer. You are our life. Um, you are our freedom. Help us to look to you and to be saved. Um, I can say it no other way, and I don't want to say it in any other way. Help every person in this room today not to leave until they shed whatever it is else that they're looking to to save them and come to you to be saved. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.